Every family has a grump. Can I get an amen? Amen. Not too loud because they could be in the row with you. You got to be, you know, reasonable about it. Every family has one. I'm not going to tell you that in our family it's my dad because that would be weird. But Pops is the worst. Uh, No, it's like, look, in every family, someone is statistically more likely to wake up in a bad mood, right? And so you just got to love that person and show them the grace of the Lord Jesus, even on those days. And, uh, and I tease Pops, and we laugh with Pops about it, but it is true. He's most likely to wake up on the wrong side of the bed. Now, I, I mention that because we as people naturally are inclined with our personalities. You know, some are more cheerful, and some are less cheerful. Some of us are upbeat, positive people. The Jets can never lose. And some of us live in the real world, right? <laughs> some of us are are more, you know, inclined to maybe a more of a, an Eeyore-ish type of, uh, of example. So, you know, that, listen, we acknowledge that. that. That is true, and God is glorified by varieties in our personalities, and we praise God for his, his creativity in that. Every family needs some of each, I think. But here's the reality. When we read Scripture, we learn something so important to our approach to daily life, and it doesn't really have anything to do with our personality, but it's this. If you have Christ, you have joy. If you have Christ, you have joy. Now, I understand that that sentence carries with it a particular amount of weight, especially in light of what I just announced, that we're going to be having a concerted time of prayer on Wednesday night for people going through chemotherapy because of cancer. I mean, the fact is we live in the real world, and there are hardships, challenges, hurts, pains, We acknowledge those as real. But even as we navigate the very real hurts in our life, it doesn't change the fact that if you have Christ, you have joy. There's sometimes a misconception that spiritually minded people are inherently sober and dour, serious and kind of always, you know, never too much excitement, never too much happiness. This is not a new problem. My friend Charlie Spurgeon said about Christians like this uh, back in the 1800s, he said they would seem to be total abstainers from joy. They are suspicious of it, lest it should be a carnal excitement. Is it sinful to smile? Could be. They hang their heads and go mourning all their days as if the religion of Christ knew no bigger festival than a funeral. And all its robes were the garments of despair. Spurgeon was pastorally saddened by the reality of Christians who seem disconnected from joy. And that's not a pastoral preference, that is a scriptural concern. Because if we understand the gospel of Jesus Christ, if we have truly responded to the gospel message by faith, brothers and sisters, we have joy. And what's going on in Matthew 9, verses 14 to 17, is some misunderstanding about what does it mean to be members of God's kingdom? What does it mean to be truly spiritual? What does it look like for people to be in a right relationship with God? And so the question comes from John the Baptist's disciples, okay? It's a question also that the Pharisees had, which some of the other uh, Gospels make clear to us. The Pharisees had the same concern. And their concern is, 
that the disciples of Jesus aren't fasting enough. Let's look at verse 14, and we'll get the setting here. Now remember, uh, Matthew has been called as a disciple in the previous chunk, and then, of course, there was a lot of pushback about Jesus spending time with sinners and tax collectors. And so there's already been some kind of inherent criticism of Jesus at this point, and that, that flavor continues in verse 14. Then John's disciples came to him, saying, Why do we and the Pharisees fast often, but your disciples do not fast. Now, just a, a quick reminder here, historically, okay? The Pharisees observed a fast on Monday and Thursday of every week. So they were, they were known to be fasting two days. We went over this when we were in the Sermon on the Mount. The Pharisees also had t-shirts that said, I'm fasting, leave me alone. You remember? They liked to, that's not literally true, but they, they liked to broadcast the fact that they were fasting. They, they would go around and they would look all, you know, sad and sour and, you know, bad mood and hair all disheveled. Oh, I'm fasting, you know, and they just kind of would broadcast it. And you'll remember in the Sermon on the Mount, Jesus instructs his followers that when you fast, don't make a big deal about it. Like, don't, it's not a Facebook status update situation. You know, you, you don't go public with it. You just, you fast and you seek the Lord in prayer and that's what you do. So given that that's a reality, we're not surprised to find that Jesus's disciples weren't seen to be fasting all the time. And so this is not necessarily unusual, but the problem was that John the Baptist's followers and the Pharisees had both had the mistaken assumption that if you were really pursuing the Lord, you should be doing what seem like religious things, right? You're supposed to be doing. To, to pursue the Lord, to be a follower of the Lord is to be doing. And so that's the concern. The concern is that Jesus and his disciples aren't doing enough. That they're not doing the spiritual things that they're supposed to be doing, like fasting twice a week. Like, what's the problem, Jesus? What, you know, what is this message that you have that, that you've given? And what's this style of teaching? What's this uh, mindset that you've given to these guys where they're just going around not fasting? They almost look happy. What's, the, what's going on here? Like, what, what's, the, what's the problem? Don't you know that if they were really spiritual or religious, that they wouldn't be so happy? Well, of course, there's a disconnect there. There's a misunderstanding. And just in the context from verse 14, we learn, I think, an important lesson this morning that God's kingdom isn't a matter of religion. God's kingdom isn't a matter of religion. Fasting is one example of this. It's the one that's highlighted here in this passage. But it just reminds us that the kingdom of God is not a matter of doing specific acts to earn God's favor so that he will forgive you and welcome you into his kingdom. That's our default setting, I think, as human beings. It's, it's the basic common misunderstanding of the Bible. The Bible is a list of things that if you do these things, then God will be happy with you. If you read the Bible and you pay attention to it, it's the opposite of what it says, right? That, that the kingdom of God is not a matter of I do certain things and then God will forgive me and welcome me, welcome me into his kingdom by virtue of my performance. Fasting is not bad. There's, it's good. But fasting is not the basis of our forgiveness. Fasting is not the hallmark of true Christianity. Just like church membership isn't the hallmark of true Christianity, or singing certain songs isn't the hallmark of true Christianity, or wearing certain clothes on a Sunday is the hallmark of true Christianity. God's kingdom isn't a matter of religion. So today, we could just ask the question, well, what is it today? Because we don't expect people to be fasting on Monday and Thursday. Well, we might expect people who are religious 
to do other things. Again, church membership, dress a certain way on a Sunday, you know, uh, not say certain vocabulary words, right? Uh, do this, don't do that, right? The list of do's and don'ts. And again, all those things may be helpful and good in their place, but they are not the content of our faith. But you know what? In our culture today, there's almost this attitude that what's most spiritual is to not be religious at all. Like if you're really spiritual, you're just going to go out in the woods and you're just going to like commune with God and you're not going to have any any visible sign of pursuit of the Lord. And of course, that's an overreaction, I think, to Jesus's message here. That's not what Jesus is saying. But he is making clear in his response, as we'll see, that, listen, Christianity isn't bound up in doing, in fasting, in, in particular religious acts. That's not the heart of it. Performance orientation, it turns out, is burdensome. It is. And the, 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 the fasts that the Pharisees were big on, and even John the Baptist's disciples, fasting is time of mourning, right? But they're particular fasts where they were mourning because uh, of the sin of God's people. They had fasts to commemorate um, failures from Israel in years past and moments of judgment, like, for example, in the destruction of the temple in 586, there was a fast every year to commemorate that, and that was something that, that everyone was expected to participate in if you were religious, Right? In general, you fast because the, the culture is so far gone and people are so messed up and there's so much sin. And certainly they would fast and mourn because the Messiah hadn't come yet. And so in all of that, there was this expectation that they had to respond to circumstances with this particular uh, mourning, sadness, sobriety because of how bad things were, how sinful people are, etc., etc. For that reason, if all you do is fast all the time, if like you're fasting multiple times a week, constantly on this morning trajectory, that will be a burden to you. Meaning you will feel like you have to do that in order to be religious, but you're not going to get much help from it. And so there's a concern here, even as John the Baptist's disciples bring the question to Jesus, there's a concern, as we'll see in Christ's response, that this performance orientation isn't what they're called to. And the, the radical, crazy thing that his disciples weren't fasting teaches us that if we define our Christianity by doing, by performing, then we've misunderstood the gospel. So how would we know if we're stuck on a performance treadmill, on the performance orientation cycle? Well, you might be stuck on that cycle if you struggle with perpetual guilt. So if you're constantly feeling like you're not doing enough, you may have misunderstood the nature of the gospel and feel like you're supposed to perform in order to earn God's favor. You might struggle with a performance orientation if you're constantly judging others because they're not doing what you're doing. They don't dress up as much as you on a Sunday. They don't, they don't uh, you know, sing the same songs that you do. They don't uh, you know, do X, Y, or Z, right? And so you're looking down on others because of their performance. Well, that could be a sign that exactly how you define your own spiritual health. Many times, a struggle with performance orientation is accompanied by uh, harboring secret sins. And I emphasize the secret on this part because if your definition of your spirituality is how you perform, I fast, I do this, I do that, right? Then certainly, if you're struggling with sin, you can't let people know that because that, will, that would then kind of destroy your whole mojo. So what you do is we still struggle with sin, we just hide it. And we don't tell anyone. It's just a secret thing. We just keep tucked away. And we never utter a word of it because we don't want anyone to know. 
because we have to put out that, that persona, that, that illusion that we're, we're performing well and we're doing good. None of that's gospel. And frankly, none of that's helpful. And what's so interesting about this moment is as John the Baptist's disciples come, like, kind of figure out, wait, what's going on? These guys don't seem very religious. They're not fasting enough. Jesus takes this opportunity to teach us about the nature of the gospel, the nature of his ministry and message. And it's just so beautiful. Watch verse 15 as Jesus responds. In verse 15, Matthew tells us, Jesus said to them, Can the wedding guests be sad while the groom is with them? The time will come when the groom will be taken away from them, and then they will fast. Now, just pause there. We're just going to do this. Jesus is going to give us a couple of images here to help us. The first is the image of a wedding, okay? Now, here's the deal. Jesus says, he assumes that weddings are happy events. Let's just grant that, okay, for the moment, all right? Weddings should be a time of celebration. I'm going to say this publicly. My wedding was a time of celebration and a happy day, Lindsay. (laughs) Okay, just so she knows, right? Uh, Weddings are meant to be a time of celebration. So he says, can the wedding guests be sad while the groom is with them? First century weddings, okay, in Israel were week-long affairs. I mean, it it was a massive party that the whole town was invited to, right? And they're celebrating, and there's this kind of joyous moment when the friends of the groom are with the groom, and they're celebrating, and the friends of the bride are with the bride, and they come together, and there's this whole big, you know, deal, and and culturally, it was just meant to be a time of joy, a time to, even though there were hard things going on, to kind of set those by the wayside, and just to, to smile, and to dance, and to be happy. Jesus says, listen, who's at a wedding, and they're over there like this, and those are the people that you had to invite because they're family, but you really didn't want them to, like, when you're picking the tables for the reception, put them in the corner, right? Keep them away from everybody else because we want everybody to celebrate. Now, we're laughing about it, but Jesus is making a serious point here. He's saying, listen, I'm here. Jesus says, I'm the groom. I'm the Messiah. By the way, in the Old Testament, it is used in the prophets, an analogy where God presents himself as the groom of the nation of Israel, that he's the faithful husband, right? And so here's the Messiah. He's arrived. He's like, who's sad? How can you be sad when I'm here? He says, listen, the, the earmark of what I have brought in the incarnation is not sadness. It's not mourning. It's joy. It's celebration. If you have Christ, you have joy. Because the Messiah has come. There's no more mourning that we're waiting for the Messiah and we're stuck in our sins and when is he ever going to come? No, he has come. He, He changed everything. And so Jesus is clarifying here the misconception that true spirituality is marked by sadness. That true spirituality is marked by mourning, this performance orientation and the mourning that goes along with that. Jesus says, no, 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 no. I've, I've come. And because I've come, the primary tone, right, of spirituality is the tone of joy. You have Christ, you have joy. The gospel brings joy. As much as I love my Russian brothers and sisters, the primary key for worship songs is not a minor key. We can sing songs in the minor key every now and then, but that can't be the primary key all the time. It just can't. Because the gospel brings joy. But notice in verse 15 how this works. It's interesting what Jesus says. Okay, can the wedding guests be sad while the groom is with them? 
No, be happy. The time will come when the groom will be taken away from them and then they will fast. The verbiage that's used here, the verb that's used that it will be taken away from them, it's probably an allusion to Isaiah 53, verse 8, which talks about the suffering servant who's basically taken away for the sake of his people. And so what's going on here is Jesus is alluding to Isaiah, 58, uh, Isaiah 53, verse 8, because he wants the disciples of John to understand that there will be a time when he himself will be forcibly removed. The, the verb there talks about being forcibly taken out. He's talking about his arrest. He's talking about his betrayal. He's talking about his crucifixion and his death. And he says, there's going to be a moment there, Jesus says, when my followers will mourn. And I don't know if you have read the rest of Matthew's gospel or some of the other gospels, but the fact is that when Jesus is arrested, his disciples struggled. They didn't know what to do. They didn't know what to make of it. They scattered. They freaked out. They were hiding. And in some senses, rightly so, you understood. Like, wow, that was, it was, they didn't know. They didn't understand the, the full dynamic of what was about to happen. So there was this moment, Jesus says, when my followers will mourn. But that, I think that reference is specifically to the time between his death and his resurrection. The fact is, when Jesus was taken away from them, what was he doing? He was purchasing their joy. When Jesus was betrayed and arrested, when he was falsely tried and convicted, when he was executed, right? When all that's going on, what is he doing? He is facilitating eternal joy. How? By dying in the place of sinners like you and me. By paying the penalty for our sin. Why? So we don't have to fast. So we don't have to mourn for eternity. So, so our days aren't constantly marked by perpetual sadness and suffering. On the cross, Jesus purchased our joy. How do we know this? Because he beat up death. Because on the third day, he rose from the dead. As he said he would, and the disciples didn't get it. But on the third day, he rose from the dead. And as he does so, he defeats sin and death, proving that his, his mission was effective. Proving that he is who he said he was. The second person of the Trinity in the flesh. That's why the gospel brings joy. The gospel brings joy precisely because Jesus was forcibly taken away and because he suffered and died in our place. But he rose from the dead. And because of that, his disciples aren't known to be perpetually mourning. They're not known to be perpetually sad. And brothers and sisters, I think that same tone continues throughout the rest of the mission of the church. That even as we navigate difficult days, ups and downs, that the common thread, the, the bottom line, the, the main key for our ministry has to be that sense of joy. If you have Christ, you have joy. The gospel brings joy, not sadness. This is not a plastic smile. Okay, it's really important that we acknowledge this. It's not an artificial pretend happiness. You know, sometimes we can do that. We can just kind of fake it. Like, think if I fake it, then that's enough. It's not acknowledging, oh, hey, or it's not pretending that we're not going through hard things. What this is, it's a Christ-centered, soul-sustaining, providence-grounded, faith-driven joy. It's focused on Christ. 
It sustains our souls through ups and downs. It's grounded in the providence of God, knowing that he is sovereign and good, and it's driven by faith. And it comes from the fact that Jesus was taken away for us. This joy endures changing circumstances. It's not tied to the fact that, well, our kids are behaving that week, or we got a raise at work that week, or the market's up or down, or a situation with the family is this or that. No, this goes way beyond that. So it's not a pretend smile. It's a deep-seated joy at the, at the level of our soul. So what about trials? What about pain? What about suffering? Well, Jesus knows all about those. But he also knows his plan. There's, there's an assumption that we have in the Bible that God's sovereignty means that our trials mean something. They are not pointless. Brothers and sisters, you need to know this, that the hardship and the pain that God has ordained for you, as hard as it is, right, those tears matter. That God is at work in your life, and he has an intention for you that is good. And so we, we have to acknowledge with Psalm 56 that he does keep our tears in his bottle, that our hardships are, are a part of his plan, that he knows they're recorded in his book, right? That, that he has a plan for our struggling. That's why we can say with James chapter 1, we can consider it pure joy whenever we face trials because we know that God is doing something. He's growing us. It doesn't make it easy. It doesn't mean it's not a big deal, but it means that we recognize that God is at work. And because he's at work, a hardship, small or big, can't take away the joy that I have in Christ. Joy is a fruit of the Spirit and results from the Spirit's work in our lives. You know this from Galatians chapter 5. But here are some other, other truths about joy from the New Testament. Joy comes from the assurance of forgiveness. The fact that we know beyond a shadow of a doubt, because of our faith in Christ, we're forgiven of our sins. No one can take that away from us. If you have Christ, you have joy. Of course, the Spirit teaches us the truth through His Word, and that truth, the Bible says, gives us joy. And so because we have the truth of the Word of God and the Spirit to illuminate it for us, guess what? If you have Christ, you have joy. The Spirit reminds us of God's faithfulness as we reflect on our circumstances. If you have Christ, you have joy. The Spirit points us to future provision, namely our resurrection from the dead, like Jesus, eternal peace and rest on the new earth, the new Jerusalem. Because we look forward to that, we have joy. Now some more controversial ones. Gathering with you people gives joy. Did you know that? Gathering with the church brings us joy by God's grace. If you have Christ, you have his family, you have joy. Why? Well, when we are ministered to by others, when we are blessed by others using their gifting, coming alongside us, bearing our burdens with us, that gives us joy. When we minister to others, when we're using our gifts and blessing others and helping them carry their burdens as the day will come, then we experience joy. You remember that it is more blessed to give than to receive. If you have Christ, you have joy. In the New Testament, we find that the testimony of the advance of God's kingdom in other places brings joy. We have these records where we have the early church celebrated because they heard about people who became Christians in other places, and it brought them joy. 
God's kingdom is growing. His work advances. We also have record in, in the Bible of people finding out that other Christians were growing in their faith. And even their, not just that people came to faith, but then that people are growing in their faith, they responded with joy as they heard that news. Praise God, others are coming to faith in Christ. Praise God, others are growing in their faith in Christ. In our community and in faraway places, if you have Christ, you have joy. And most controversial in the Bible, we read that trials and persecution result in joy because we know that God is using them for our good and His glory. We have Christ, we have joy. It's not a plastic smile, it's not pretend happiness. It's a deep seated confidence in God, what He's done for us, and what He is continuing to do. And Jesus says, My followers aren't invited to a funeral, they're invited to a wedding. So no, they shouldn't be known as those who are mourning all the time. I I think it's important just to acknowledge this morning that probably all of us here are experiencing hurt and pain in some way, shape, or form. And so I think it's important that as we hear Jesus correcting the misunderstanding of John's followers and the Pharisees, we have this opportunity not to pretend that our pain doesn't exist, but to look it right in the eye and to say, yes, this hurts. But this can't take away my joy in Christ. Because the groom has come. He died for our sins and rose from the dead. The time of mourning is over. So rejoice. Even in the hardship, you can rejoice and have true joy. You are forgiven by faith in Jesus. You are accepted by God by faith in Jesus. You are loved. Jesus proves it. You are being led by the Spirit of Christ. By faith, you are a citizen of God's kingdom. And yes, you will rest with our glorious king forever so you can have joy. If you have Christ, you have joy. Now, this gospel joy, though, it's not compatible with a performance orientation or that works religious mindset. And that's where Jesus goes in the next two examples. He uses two more very common first century examples to drive this point home. And so let's look at these in verses 16 and 17 and see how this helps us this morning. In verse 16, Jesus goes on. He's talked about the wedding picture, the joy, okay? Even though um, the groom will be taken away, right? They'll fast during that time. But again, that's, that's his death on our behalf. Verse 16, Jesus goes on. He says, No one patches an old garment with unshrunk cloth because the patch pulls away from the garment and makes the tear worse. Uh, I think most of us didn't understand any word in that sentence, so we're just going to have to circle back on it. Let me just tell you what he's talking about by way of an illustration. Um, Many, many years ago, boy, it was a long time ago, I I was in the old city of Jerusalem. This is 1997. Okay, that's how long ago it was. And I bought a souvenir t-shirt, which I was super excited about. It was Coca-Cola written in Hebrew. How awesome is that, right? And uh, I'm pretty sure I paid like one shekel, which is like 30 cents for this for this t-shirt, okay? It was in the old city. It was super, super sketchy and uh, definitely wasn't licensed by the Coca-Cola Corporation. Anyway, great. I just admitted it in public. All right. Well, anyway, so I get home. I'm so, I wore the shirt, right? It was so great. And when we were in Israel, um, we didn't have, you know, we, we washed the clothes, but it was always on cold water and hung them out to dry. So I got home from my semester in Israel and my mom, bless her heart, did my laundry, right? With a sweet, modern washer and dryer, washing that baby on high heat, right? Okay? 
So whoever made this t-shirt hadn't read this verse, okay? Because um, one ha- the shirt was two pieces of cloth that had been sewn together, and one half of the shirt had been pre-shrunk already, and the other half had not. And so when I put that shirt on, it didn't work right, okay? And I was like making an unintentional fashion statement. And I remember vividly to this day putting that shirt on my mom, looking at me going, mm, something's not right. I said, no, it's in Hebrew. She's like, no, 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 that's not it, okay? Because if you wash, if you wash something, with, you attach a part of a, of a cloth to something else that's been shrunk and it hasn't been shrunk, it's going to mess the whole thing up. It's going to tear. It's going to pull apart. It's not going to work right, okay? That's what Jesus is saying. What is he saying, though? Why say that? He's saying the old garment, right, the old garment is this works orientation based on the Old Covenant. That John's disciples and the Pharisees are reading the Old Covenant, they're reading the Old Testament, the Mosaic Law, and they're saying, oh, we have to do all these things. That's a misreading of the Old Testament. The the law was never designed to provide forgiveness, okay? It was a guide for how God's people should live, right, in Israel at that time, but it wasn't designed to, to accomplish their forgiveness. But they misunderstood it. And so they thought, oh, we have to be doing all these things in order to earn and keep God's favor. So we got to keep doing and doing. And so it's not hard to imagine how that devolved into this performance mindset, doing over and over and over. But what Jesus says is that his message is different than that approach to the Old Testament. He fulfills the Old Covenant, right? He's not casting it away. It's still good and beneficial. But what he's saying is different. It's something new. Okay, to make the point again, verse 17, a similar He uses a similar image. Verse 17, And no one puts new wine into old wineskins. Otherwise, the skins burst, the wine spills out, and the skins are ruined. No, they put new wine into fresh wineskins, and both are preserved. Okay, let's talk about this. So, uh, wineskins were made from animal hides, okay? And so, they they would take an animal hide, they would fill it with wine. Through the fermentation process, though, that would basically take a toll on that animal skin. And over time, it would dry out, okay? And so be it. If you put new wine that hasn't been fermented yet into that wine skin, a dried out old wine skin, as it ferments, that reaction is going to put too much pressure on that wine skin and it will burst because it's old and cracked. And then you're going to lose the wine and the wine skin's ruined. Jesus says you don't put new wine in old wine skins. There's something new about this gospel, There's something new about his ministry because the Messiah has arrived. What is it? Well, the newness is found in joy. It's found in the fact that that no, it's it's not about a performance orientation or some kind of of good works treadmill. Jesus is announcing the arrival of, of God's kingdom, and he's announcing the fact that you have access to that by faith in him. That is good news of great joy. And as Jesus brings that message, he says that's incompatible with this works orientation approach based on a misreading of the old covenant. He says, I've come to establish something new, something different. And yes, it's consistent with the Old Testament because the law says you need a savior and the law points us to see who the savior is. But fundamentally, the message of the law was never do, 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 and then maybe God will forgive you. Jesus says, you can't stuff my gospel into that old wineskin. It's really a beautiful message here given to us in a very practical illustration. The gospel is incompatible with a works mindset. My friend Luther called the old wine bottle gospel-less thinking. 
thinking about your approach to God without the gospel. It's about me and what I do, right? These religious acts. I think Luther's right. If we've bought the lie that we have to do works to get in, right, we'll never get there. And if we've bought the lie that we have to do good works to stay in, we'll never stay there. You constantly be living in that fear of losing your salvation or being cast aside. But the newness of gospel is seen here in the, the substitution of joy for mourning. The provision of Jesus for us in his work rather than our work. Listen, you just need to know that we are all at risk of having this performance orientation and a works mindset. But it will harm you spiritually if you don't see it for what it is. In some specific ways, okay? First of all, that works mindset is harmful to you because it doesn't bring about forgiveness. So you do all this work and it doesn't result in forgiveness. No wonder there was so much fasting going on. The works mindset is harmful to us because it puffs, it puffs us up with pride where maybe we've mistakenly think that we are better than other people and we can really do it. Of course, we can't, but we've deceived ourselves. A works mindset is harmful because it prevents us from seeking Christ. If you believe that you get into the kingdom and stay in the kingdom by virtue of your effort, then you're not going to look for help from a savior. You are your savior. And so work, work, try to not say bad words, try to, try to always do what's right, you know, do all those good things and then all of that and, and then maybe you'll get in and maybe you'll keep it, but of course you won't. But you won't look to Christ for help because you're going to try to help yourself. Spiritually, it's devastating. A works mindset is harmful because it encourages us to judge others. Or we really will slip into that mindset of, well, I am better than them. You might not say it quite that bluntly. A works mindset is harmful to us because the treadmill never ends. Never ends. It's never enough. And of course, a works mindset is harmful to us because it absolutely crushes us when we fail. If you've defined your spirituality by things you do, you earn your way in and you, you stay in by virtue of what you've done, right? When you fail, you're devastated. And yes, you'll be tempted to hide it perhaps, but boy, woe to you, especially if you fail in a way that other people know, because now you're in big trouble. Because not only have you lost your standing with God and potentially lost your forgiveness in your mind, but now other people know about it. And so it, it ruins people because they mistakenly are trying to stuff the gospel in an old wineskin. And if you do that, the wineskin bursts and you lose the wine. It's just important, though, that Jesus ends with that positive note. No, you put new wine into fresh wineskins and both are preserved, the wine and the wineskin. Jesus says, listen, I have not come to frustrate you. I have not come to lead you in a funeral procession. I have come that you would have joy. I have come that you would be forgiven of your sins. I have come to offer grace. No, my disciples are not marked by strict law-keeping, this obsessive performance orientation. My disciples are marked by pursuit of me. They follow me. That's what makes them different. And yes, they have real, genuine joy. This is what is new about the gospel. And this is why, we're back to the beginning, this is why we cannot allow ourselves to be perpetually sad as Christians. We've got to push back on that. 
And when, when you're struggling and you're going through the hard times, which you will, right? We all are going to face these difficulties. When we do that, we never lose sight of Christ. Because if you have Christ, you have joy. You have it. Don't lose it. Don't, don't miss the fact that even in the hardship, he is at work. There's a beauty to the gospel. There's a beauty to the grace of God here. Jesus says, if, if, yeah, my followers aren't going to be sad all the time. No way. That's not going to be it. If you're here this morning and you feel like you are struggling with that, just maybe ask yourself a couple of questions, right? One, have you reduced your spiritual life to a performance thing? Have you missed the gospel? Right? Two, ask yourself, have you lost sight of the sovereignty of God? Because oftentimes what happens when we get into these difficulties, we're looking at the trial so much. It's right in front of us, right? It's like all we can see. And when that's all we're looking at, we just forget that God is at work. What dear sister said to me this week, that we forget that God works on the other side of it, that there's growth to happen on the other side of the trial. And if we don't believe God is sovereign, then you don't have any hope for that. It could just be a train wreck. But because of the goodness of our God, we know that he is at work in that hardship. So the hardship doesn't rob us of the joy. Maybe you're just angry at other people for failing you. Maybe you're angry at yourself for failing. You know, people do fail you. Absolutely. And we fail. But none of that changes the fact that Jesus died for our sins and rose from the dead. None of that changes the fact that in Revelation 19, when Jesus is gathered together with his saints, what is it? It's a wedding feast, the marriage supper of the Lamb. That's where we're headed. And nothing that happens to you, nothing that someone else does to you, no circumstances that that happens to you can change the fact that Jesus has secured your seat at that table by his shed blood. If you have Christ, you have joy. You have it. My friend Calvin recognized the tension here between acknowledging we go through hard times, but then we have this joy. Listen to how he describes our lives. He says, Scripture gives saints the praise of endurance when, though afflicted by, though afflicted by hardships, they endure. They are not crushed. Though they feel bitter, they are at the same time filled with spiritual joy. Though pressed with anxiety, they breathe exhilaration by the consolation of God. Nobody is saying, oh, if you're a Christian, you'll never go through hard times. Actually, people are saying that. They're totally wrong. Okay? That's not the message of the Bible. Oh, if you become a Christian, you'll never go through hard times. Nobody's saying that. But what's clear from Scripture is that the fundamental baseline for believers in the gospel of Jesus Christ is not mourning and sadness, but it's joy. You're going to face hard times. The question is, will you lose sight of the joy you have in Christ? Would you pray with me and we'll ask God to help us hold on to this joy. Lord, we pause this morning so thankful for the gift of your word and especially these verses in Matthew 9. Lord, where we recognize, we see clearly that because of the incarnation, because of the gospel, we have true joy. 
But Lord, we also see clearly that there is a constant temptation for us to lose sight of this. To mistakenly believe that that our spiritual lives are dependent on our performance. Lord, please cure us from that mindset. Teach us from your word. Lord, may we see that being in your kingdom is not a matter of a, a list of do's and don'ts where we perform and we're good enough and then we get in. Lord, may we see that the gospel is indeed fundamentally a message of grace and forgiveness by faith in you. And yes, we recognize, Lord, that the cost of this joy is, was your death on our behalf. And Lord, we praise you that you not only willingly died in our place, but that you rose from the dead. So that this, this joy that we have is rooted in the historical reality of your resurrection. Lord, I, I pray. I pray for all of us as we struggle with different kinds of trials. Lord, help us to recognize that pain and hardship doesn't undo the gospel. Lord, help us to be people who endure by faith through the, the bitter and difficult times. And even as we shed tears, Lord, of sorrow and hurt, may we never lose sight of ultimately this provision of joy that you have gifted us. And Lord, we thank you that we know the end of the story and that one day we will celebrate at the marriage supper of the Lamb because of your grace. Help us to be mindful of that today as we seek to navigate the complexities of our lives. Lord, help us to cling to you and to cling to this joy. Lord, we thank you that the primary theme of the gospel is not mourning and sadness, but it is joy and provision. We pray these things, Lord Jesus, in your name. Amen.